Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. This episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredients and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high-quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. They have established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States, and as a result of this, their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. And their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. So one way to support History on Fire is to take them up on their offer to try three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. I've tried their services in the past and love them, so I can vouch for the high quality of their ingredients. So again, check them out for yourself by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. This episode is also brought to you by onnit.com. Onnit, you know, I could probably spend each episode I could pick a different Onnit products and I would not run out of products that I like on their website for years to come. They have so much stuff. They have uh, supplements, workout gear, uh, clothing, all sorts of other goodies. Um, you can just check them out. If you go to onnit.com forward slash history, again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, you can check out for yourself if any of their products are to your taste and you will get an automatic discount. One that I want to particularly recommend right now is their Alpha Brain in powder form. I've tried it. Oh my God, it works so well. It basically really wakes you up. You get a feeling it's almost like coffee, except that coffee you get jittery and not quite as sharp mentally as what you get from Alpha Brain. I've really enjoyed it a lot lately. Uh, I hadn't tried it before. I tried a lot of their other things, and I hadn't tried that one. That was a very successful experiment. Having said that, uh, this episode is also, is also brought to you by Datsusara. Datsusara is great. I use uh, their backpacks, travel bags. My computer bag has been with me every single day for the past five years or something. I'm currently wearing a Datsusara hoodie. Um, all of their stuff is made of hemp. Really, really like it. So check them out at um, 
sgear.com, the letter D, the letter S, and the word gear.com. Use the code Daniele, which is my name, um, when you check out to get a discount. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. At the end of the episode, I'll have uh, more about news, ways to support the show, future plans. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Today, we're going to do something different. Some of you may be annoyed upon finding out that today's episode is not the tale of some epic historical event, but it's actually an interview. But I get the feeling that many of you will not be so disappointed when you find out who my guest today is. I don't really plan to ever have guests on History on Fire, but I think this particular individual is quite worthy of making an exception. The man I'm talking about is the greatest historical podcaster in the world, and perhaps we can strike out the qualifier historical from this title. He may very well be the greatest podcast in the world, period. He also happened to be one of my favorite human beings and my number one inspiration for creating History on Fire. I very much treasure his friendship, and any time I've had a chance to interact with him has been a treat. The man I'm speaking of is, of course, Dan Carlin. One quick note about this conversation. Toward the beginning, there's a good couple of minutes, two to three minutes, where the mic picks up all sort of background noise. I really apologize about that. It's fairly annoying, but please bear with me because it's only going to last for really maybe two or three minutes. There are a couple of minutes that are bad, then there's another few minutes where it's barely noticeable and then it disappears completely. So just a warning, if you find yourself wanting to beat me because of the audio quality, please restrain yourself because it only lasts just a little bit. Before we get started with my conversation with Dan, I have an important announcement though. Coming up at the end of May will be the first episode of a four-part series about the clash between the Spaniards under Cortés and the Mexica, better known as Aztecs, under Moctezuma. This is going to be quite a powerful series, and I can't wait to start recording. But before I do that, I am planning to record a bonus episode that I'll be releasing in early May. My tentative release date for now is May 7th. Let's see if I'm actually able to deliver on time or not. But the tale basically reads like a cross between the Godfather and the Lion King, taking place in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. It involves characters with flowery names like Nezahualcoyotl, the poet king of Texcoco, and Tezozomoc, a larger-than-life godfather figure whose name means Angry Stone Face. It's quite a name right there. Our tale will involve human sacrifice, political intrigue, and Conan the Barbarian's favorite theme, revenge. I will be sending the episode for free via email to anyone who's on a recurring donation plan. So if you are donating money every month to History on Fire, you will be getting an email from me with this particular episode. After I decided to do that, though, I felt bad for those who have recently donated, even if it was on a one-time basis. So I'm also going to be sending the episode to 
yes, I will send it to anybody on a recurring plan, but I'll also send it to anyone who donated in the last three months. If you have donated but you don't receive the episode, please let me know and I'll check my records and we'll try to fix it. For anyone else, the episode will be up for sale on the historyonfirepodcast.com website. I truly think you'll like this one. I'll shut up about all this now, and let's get started with my conversation with the godfather of podcasting, the one and only Dan Carlin. Here with me today, the one and only, the man, the messiah, the future king of Hawaii, the one and only <laughs> Dan Carlin. <laughs> How are you, Dan? I'm thinking the Hawaiians are a little surprised by this whole thing right now. I'm doing great. How about you? Good. Uh, by the way, that's just uh, me paying homage because the king of Hawaii is my gig. It's what I want to do in life. So I'm just... Uh, I'm just bowing out and giving you the title because that's, uh, in my mind, that's the coolest gig in the world. There's like... too much paperwork for me. <laughs> I see. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, okay, in that case, I'll, I'll gladly take over the spot. If uh... Well, let's go play. Um... <laughs> there are so many things that I want to chat with you about, ideas, random things. One that has been on my mind nonstop lately, and you hit on it regularly, is one of the topics that I'm obsessed with. I just keep hammering on it on just every other podcast I record. There's a quote in an interview that you did that, um, for all the listeners, let me read it real quick. It says, if I can add some nuance and complexity and some context and compassion, if I can get people to think about walking a mile in the other guy's moccasins or pretend like you want to, then I can feel like I'm adding something that is unusual. And it's a little bit shocking and upsetting to me that that is unusual. When people say it's so refreshing, you wonder why is it refreshing to try to see the other person's viewpoint? Shouldn't that just be how we are? Those lines right there for me are... It's, it's exactly the kind of things that I play with every single day in dialogues uh, with people all the time. I'm puzzled, and, and you're hitting on this topic a lot as well. I've heard it on multiple common sense episodes uh, when you basically bring up the idea of why do people limit themselves to a fixed ideology rather than just adopting whatever solution seems to fit the situation at hand, regardless of which ideological camp it comes from. So here is my question, I guess. Why is it that nuance thinking is so rare? Why is it that, as you put it, why is it so refreshing? It should be what every human being with half a brain does. Why is it instead a special thing? Um, what's, what's about nuance thinking that makes, that most human beings seems to be allergic to it? I, uh, I, I would say, you know, it's one of those questions where you just have to theorize because mm -hmm. how would you know? Um, in, in my case, I feel like it's a combination maybe of genetics mm -hmm. and how I was raised. But I think that maybe they'll find out someday that, for example, we'll just take one little aspect of the political demographic pie being fiscally conservative. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's a gene and people are just some people are born that way. Some people are born uh, more free spending and maybe that's converted into their politics at some point. I certainly think there's a there's an ease, and this isn't meant as an insult, but there's an ease to adopting an ideology 
because it gives you sort of ready-made answers for any situation. But that doesn't mean that a lot of people don't fervently believe that that's really the right way. It's not, it's not an ideology to them. It's the right way. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's part of, you know, when we talk about walking a mile in the other guy's moccasins, those of us without fixed ideologies also have to understand that the ideological may have some very good points, you know. Um, so so in, in that sense, I think it's, it's a manifestation of different personality types just taken into the political realm. People who are conservative and more old fashioned and and consistent in their values over time maybe are more likely to be conservative voters, whereas people who live a more let's just say a bohemian lifestyle or something in some of the communities that are more progressive. So that's the world they live in. Maybe that's part of what makes them. I, it, it's a deeper question, though. The, the question of nuance, one would hope that ideology and nuance didn't have anything to do with each other, mm-hmm. right? Like you could have a consistent political ideology, but be nuanced at the same time. And I think people are. Um, but in terms of you know, if you're going to talk about it genetically, like I just said, it does make you wonder whether you could change the educational system and inject nuance into it somehow. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's fun about studying history, because it puts you in the other guy's moccasins or the other gal's moccasins sort of by default. I mean, that's all you're doing is looking at things from the perspective of other people in other eras. Um, I wonder if you could do a better job of somehow making history relevant in that conversation by teaching it differently in school. You know, we always talk about the names and the dates, but how can you make history relevant in terms of a life skill? And maybe if you could teach somehow an appreciation for the ever-present shades of gray that are always around people, Maybe that's, you know, you'll forget the names and the dates, but that might be a life lesson that stays with people and that is adaptable and usable in many areas of their life later on. A practical reason for history. Absolutely. And I think part of what makes it tricky is that once you start emphasizing nuance, then it's very easy to start slipping in complete relativism, where there is no good or bad. Everything is a shade of gray. There are no good choices. There's no bad choices. Uh, it's all uh, culturally relative. And that also is an ideological trap because that also becomes the default answer to everything where you don't make a call sometime when a call needs to be made. Uh, you don't take a stand. when, And that's not clearly what we're advocating when we're saying nuance. Nuance does not mean have no opinion, all opinions are the same. And I think, again, because we think so dualistically, the moment we give up absolutes and the black and white mindset and we embrace nuance, it's very easy for it to turn into a complete uh, relativist cop-out. And again, that's not the alternative to the absolute. That's another absolute that's just as silly. And so to be able to develop what you're saying, that nuance thinking and that ability to see things through somebody else's perspective does not mean, you know, it's the classic thing. If we look at some horrible people in history, there's this idea that if we try to understand them, we're justifying them. And that's not at all what we're doing. You know, you want to understand what makes monsters tick, not because you are providing an apology for their behavior, not because you are providing a justification for their behavior, but because that's how you understand that you can predict things. That's you understand what creates certain conditions. Again, you're not giving it its stamp of approval, but you are trying to get it other than just say, well, that's just because they are monsters. Well, I think we play with this idea in our podcast all the time, for example. I mean, when we talk about um, someone like uh, a Hitler, mm-hmm. and, and we ask about 
whether or not um, he's as bad of a guy as Alexander the Great based upon what his motivations were. Mm-hmm. Um, that becomes a way of, of looking at somebody and trying to decide how you would judge them, for lack of a better word. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long standard. I mean, if you think about it in terms of like being tried in a courtroom by mm-hmm. a jury of your peers, if you got some of these people up there, let, let's, take, let's take some middle, uh, middle-age uh, execution. So I have this book uh, about, 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 an, about, about a, an executioner in the Middle Ages, and it's like the only diary they've ever found of one of these people. You would have that book. I would have, Why am I not surprised? It's funny I don't have more than one copy. I have, <laughs> I, but, but, but when you read this, it's funny because you're getting a full example of a man that if you, if you thought about him today, you're going to think this is a terrible human being. And it's not a cultural relativistic thing to say. I mean, this is a person yeah. that, that cuts people's heads off for things that we would hardly incarcerate you for today. And yet, if you could put him on trial in a modern courtroom, but the jury had to be made up of people also from that era, does the guy get acquitted or does the guy get found guilty? Because some of the bad people in history would be found innocent by a jury of their peers, mm-hmm. but some of them stand out in such a way that even in their time period, they would be convicted by people from their own era. So, I mean, I kind of try to look at it that way, too. I mean, um, you know, are these people outliers in their own time? Uh, Hitler was an outlier in his own time. Yeah. Was, was Genghis Khan? That's a harder question. Yeah. No, and I think that hits uh, one of the classic debates in history, whether we can judge the past. Because, you know, one of the standard things is you can't judge the past because people live by different cultural standards. And, you know, I get it. I'm not a totalitarian who wants to impose uh, his own values on everyone's. But I also find this idea that we can judge at all a little bit too relativistic. You know, I feel like... It could be fun to look at both sides of the argument um, in this in the whole situation. Look at it, you know. We should we not judge, or there's something legitimate in making a call and saying, "No, this is an awful human being. That is an awful behavior in all times, all places. There is no way to spin it in a good way." Do you think your standard is it the outliers? It's kind of like as long as it's uh, within that society, there was the option to think otherwise. Is that kind of where you're going with it, or what would be your way to look at it? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that over time, perspectives change. So, mm-hmm. you know, to get back to what we were saying about the ways we... I always play with Hitler because everybody still understands Hitler, right? You know, yeah. If you talk about people from too long ago, you lose the emotion, and so you're unable to, to play with it the same way. But I'll talk about Hitler, and we'll talk about what he'll be seen as 500 years from now, mm-hmm. or 1,000 years from now, when the emotion is drained out of the situation, when the people who have a connection to the victims are gone. Yeah. You know, do we then treat him in a way where we start talking about his upside? You know the good the good side. I mean, let's let, let's show a little <laughs> right. nuance. I mean, yeah. the, the guy created the autobahn, and I mean, so so um, right. I mean, I, I, so I think that the reason to do that is not to understand how Hitler will be treated uh, treated in the future. The reason to play with that is to understand how people who are already have had that happen to them because they're five hundred years in the past, and ask whether or not that's been done to them. Definitely. So so my problem with trying to make this case, and I I fully understand it about. 
you know, a, a, a common set of values that we can judge people over the millennia by. And we, and we talked about this in the Mongol shows that yeah. we did with Genghis Khan. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you put a good face as is very common now on the Mongol conquests when you yeah. realize how many people had to pay with their lives for whatever benefits happened? But let's understand, I think a little bit that, that if those people didn't know it was wrong, again, it's, if you look at it in a court of law situation today, would we hold people accountable if they were clearly not sane by today's standards or, or simply had no concept of good or bad as we judge it? Mm-hmm. I mean, how much – I find it hard to hold people accountable. For example, like these kids that you see and, and ISIS, will the, the terrorist yeah. group, will show them a video sometimes and they'll show these little boys yeah. who are essentially being forced to decapitate prisoners. And you ask yourself, okay – so when these boys turn into 35-year-old men, mm-hmm. how much are you going to be able to hold them accountable? Obviously, you can hold them accountable for simply doing the deeds and say, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't matter what you thought. Yeah. At, at the same time, to expect them to have known intrinsically that that was wrong, I think some people will. I think there's that, that Jiminy, uh, uh, Jiminy Cricket part of you, your soul that just knows in, yeah. so, in some people. But I think a lot of those people would legitimately be able to say, essentially, I was totally brutalized myself. I was totally put in a situation where this was the norm. I was praised and rewarded when I did it and punished it when I didn't. At what point can you say to that person, yeah, but you should have known better? I don't, you know, I think some people, like I said, will intrinsically feel a certain pang of guilt and not maybe even understand why. But I think throughout most of human history, people would look at that and say, well, how could they have known better? I mean, what sort of influences did they even have that would clue them into that, right? I mean, what would sure. we be judged for in 500 years if I could put you in the time machine and you get out there and they're ready to hang you for eating meat? I mean, yeah. you don't know what the rules are going to be. No, absolutely. And I think there is a separation there between acknowledging that, yes, somebody got really bad cards and they probably never really had much of a chance from day one, and at the same time saying, no, well, what they did is okay because somehow they didn't know any better. No, you can still condemn the act and at the same time say, well, I mean, I understand why it would happen. I understand why somebody in that position would do such a thing. But that doesn't mean we justify it. I mean, sometimes I feel that we are a little too quick in using this uh, we can judge the past to justify it. It's like, ah, so what if uh, Genghis Khan wiped out 20 million people? At least he created a world in which such and such good thing could be possible. So what if the conquest of the Americas led to the deaths of uh, millions of indigenous people? He gave us the modern world, so it's all worth it. It's like, uh, I'm a little sketchy on being so quick into turning the not judging into a complete justification of the actions. Well, I think you can say absolutely. I mean, if you if you simply put on one side of the guy's scorecard, right, his historical ledger mm-hmm. and say he's responsible for killing, we'll throw it up 15 percent, 20 percent of the global population, maybe at the time. Um, what could you possibly put on the other side <laughs> of the ledger where you, where you go? OK, that was. And, and the funny thing is, is that you have to ask two different questions. You have to say. Is it worth it to us now? In which case you go, absolutely. I didn't know any of those 16 million people. (laughs) And I still got the benefits. But as we said in the show, the people who live during that time period are probably going to sit there and go, screw your benefits in a millennia. You know, we have to live through this stuff. And he destroyed our entire irrigation system and we're starving. Yeah. You know, so, so I mean, 
I guess we're finding that nuance that we talked about earlier, but there's so many different ways to view it. Mm -hmm. If you took the guy in a time machine, let him loose in downtown Manhattan, I'm sure the guy is facing a death sentence, you know, in Sing Sing in like a year. Um, So, I mean, we wouldn't hesitate to judge him by modern standards now. Um, At the same time, boy, it it is really so hard to go back in time and, and try to go to people who were, I mean, were literally raised in a completely, I mean, for example, let's take the most extreme situation that comes to mind with just regular people, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to pick out, you know, the, the Hitlers of, of history or people in that kind of a position. But like, the, and, and I'm going to acknowledge right now that this may not be true. Let's say that before I sure. get 10,000 emails from the descendants of Carthaginians or people who think they're the <laughs> oh, descendants yeah. of Carthaginians. <laughs> but, 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 the, but, but the Greek slur, as they always said, about Carthaginians throwing their own children into the god, is it Baal? I think it's Baal, right. uh, into, his, into his glowing red metallic arms as child sacrifice. And I do think that they have found, I could be wrong about this, I do think they have found child skeletons, though, at various sites that would indicate that maybe this is true. Yeah. Some people say maybe these were already dead babies, you don't mm-hmm. know. But the point is, is let's play with that thought for a minute. Um, the willingness to sacrifice your own children because you thought that it somehow influenced the way the gods would treat you, the rest of your family, uh, your king, your whatever passed for a nation state back then. I mean, to me, that's a different thing because that's more indicative of the average Joe and Jane on the ground than these outlier figures who represent yeah. 0.00001% of the people who've ever lived and who command armies and, and peoples and kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think... And I think that is important, what you bring up, is like the degree to which the culture creates that. And, and I do like, though, how sometimes you do make the call. Like, I remember you had this series on uh, uh, Nazis versus Soviets in World War II, and you did flat-out state these are two evil systems. You know, you didn't just kind of hide behind, uh, oh, we can look at the past that way. You were saying this is a story of bad guys versus bad guys. Now, bad guys does not mean every individual involved. There were probably some really nice people in the Soviet army. There were probably some very nice people in the Nazi army. These are just individuals who got caught up and thrown in there beyond their will. But as a system, as an ideology, as what the overall picture was doing, that was evil. There, there are just not too many ways to spin it. You know, that's where I feel that relativism goes too far when we start just being, oh, I'm an objective observer and I'm not going to make the call. Uh, that's where I think... I'm preparing right now this series on Spaniards versus Aztecs, where the Spaniards will invade uh, Mexico. And that is another one of the stories. When you look at what the Spaniards were doing, and it's awful. And you look at what the Aztecs were doing, and it's just as awful. There is no way to spin it. Oh, well, that was just their cultural habit. You need to understand that, you know, ripping the hearts of living prisoners out to offer them to your gods, that's just a cultural characteristic. You can be so judgmental. I'm like, eh, okay, we're, we're passing the line where I'm comfortable there. Well, I, and truthfully, I mean, I think you've zeroed in on one of the things that makes history so fascinating is is these kinds of questions. And as you well know, and better than I, actually, historians in private meetings and conferences debate the, the, the value of this kind of stuff all the time. Um, but if you could bring back, for example, a, an Aztec who was a firm believer in the importance of the ceremonies where the living heart was pulled out of the sacrificial uh-huh. victim, 
and you try to make this case to them, how hard do you think it would be to get them to understand your point of view? Because once again, I mean, I think we even see this in our modern debates where this is a, a lot of this is based on our entire Let's call it, for the sake of argument right now, Western, although some of us mm-hmm. would, would suggest that these are global, enlightened yep. views. But, I mean, the ideas that we're discussing now are based on you know, 18th century concepts of the rights of human beings and all these kinds of things that even modern-day China today would argue are not human rights, but they're Western rights. Right. And, and so, so perhaps somebody who actually believed that concept from another society today would look at these same circumstances that we're looking at and maybe say something like the loss of the individual, maybe even a prisoner of war. So who the hell cares? Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> right. But but the loss of that individual's heart saved that entire community from the volcano exploding and killing everybody. That's a, a trade off between individual rights and the common good, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What's wrong with you? Do, do you want the war to end? It's like, yeah, no, I what, get you, it. What are you, crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. The, I guess on that topic of nuance, um, your approach seems to be so perfectly very yin-yang. You have always, there's this side, there's this other side. There's always this dance between the opposite viewpoints. So you seem to operate from a very Taoist mindset. I'm curious if this is a conscious influence or if you are a subconscious Taoist. It's like, did you read much Taoism? Is that kind of something that you gravitate toward? Or is it just how you are naturally and it just happened to be in line with Taoist ideas? I tend to think it's how I am naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a devil's advocate guy anyway, and I think that that's another way of saying, um, you know, what you're suggesting, the duality and the balance and all mm-hmm. that. But but I will say I was raised, you know, I, I was a pretty passionate, one-sided person in terms of politics when I was younger, but I was raised in a family where literally the quote was up on the wall, you know, never judge another man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. And, right. And this becomes something that, you know, it's hard for me to separate how much of that was who I grew into as an older person and how much of that was hammered into my head growing up in a family of those people. Um, so, so I don't know the answer to that. I certainly was a guy. I had one of those fathers that wasn't like a hands-on teacher. He was more of an example father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you really wanted to be like him, and he was that way. And I had a grandfather who um, I remember reading the um, – the speech that was given at his funeral and the guy who read about him had said that he was a great salesman and that he was a great salesman because he was always able to put himself in the other guy's position yeah. and see things from his vantage point, which makes me think there that maybe something, you know, once again, I think genetics is going to end up accounting for so much more than we actually think now it's accounting for. So it, it, it's probably a combination of, of uh, what would you say, set and setting, circumstance and, and, and influence. Um, so, so I, maybe I am Taoist, not consciously, but, but I, I can't separate whether or not I was born that way, raised that way, or a combination of the two. No, but even if raised that way, it's not necessarily raised that way as in, uh, oh, you know, we read the Tao Te Ching, uh, let's talk about Chuan, so he's raised no, that way. No, I, was, I was not raised right. that way, no. <laughs> right. No, I don't mean like literally Taoist in the strictest sense, but, you know, maybe you read those books and they influence you in a big way, or these instead sound that both the way you are by nature and the way you are by nurture, but not in a per se specifically Taoist kind of way more in a that just how the people around you thought that's how you grew up thinking um, not a, not Taoist in the literal sense of Taoist but Taoist in a very loose sense that even somebody who knows nothing about Taoism may end up sharing those principles just because they happen to be kind of 
part of the options for you on the table once that makes sense. I think there's a personality type, and I think they were probably the guys who started Taoism right. all that time ago. <laughs> exactly. It's like the natural Taoists. Or the, the Dan Carlin as Lao Tzu reincarnation. I, I dig that concept. I <laughs> used to be the king of Hawaii. Yeah, I know. I think maybe that's a better gig. But uh, <laughs> now, on since we just mentioned Aztec human sacrifice, we mentioned uh, you know Genghis Khan, Hitler. Uh, executioner in the Middle Ages, you know, it seems to be violence is clearly a big part of uh, hardcore history. I do the same thing, you know, in History on Fire when I think about it, just it's kind of weird because uh, I notice that most of the, like every single character in in the episodes I've done so far, all the main characters are people who have killed somebody else. Most of our episodes, both yours and mine, tend to be at least partially about warfare and violence. Why? Are we just twisted sons of bitches who are uniquely fascinated with this stuff? Isn't there more to history than just war? Wouldn't it be healthy maybe sometime to figure out a way to do episodes about more pleasant characters or historical events? Why are we so stuck in it? And I'm asking, I'm asking you, but not really because I'm asking myself that question and I don't know the answer. I see a pattern there. I'm like, why is there always so much about war? Why history? Isn't there other amazing stuff that happened in history? Why are we so fixated on the warfare and gory and nasty stories? Well, there's a lot of different questions wrapped up in that question. Let's let's start with the idea, though, that how did history begin as something written for individuals to enjoy, as mm-hmm. opposed to people chronicling things, right? So yeah. you go to ancient Mesopotamia, and they're giving you lists of kings, or no, you know that that's a different kind of thing than somebody deciding to write history for an audience to yeah. enjoy, right? The very first acknowledged history that people, you know, will look back on because they call him the father of history is Herodotus. What is he writing about? He's writing about a war. Yeah. So that's your first one. And then the great historians that come after him, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, Polybius or Thucydides or any of those, they're all writing about war. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And and then you get the people like Plutarch, who's writing about the Shakespearean side of things, where it's not just war, but it's interpersonal relationships and being stabbed in the back and comparing this guy's moral qualities with that guy's moral qualities. And so you're setting up something that has created the the fodder for most of our popular entertainment forever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when the Greeks were doing plays, what were the plays about? Were they about somebody making pottery in the back room that was going to be so important for us to figure out the dating strata of this ancient Celtic civilization? No, they're sitting there having a, you know, the gods are intervening and they're, they're, they're punishing this guy for his tragic flaws back then and Helen gets stolen and so they have a war with <laughs> Troy. And, and, and I guess, you know, there's a saying in news that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Well, history is news from the past, right? I mean, the yeah. same way that CNN's ratings are going to skyrocket if we get into a war tomorrow, when you go to the history bookshelf at your local bookstore, which is going to be small because your local bookstore is now going to be small, it's going to be about a lot of war and some other stuff um, because that draws the human eye. There's a quote that I actually have pinned on my wall. I can read it right now because it's on my wall from the great historian Will Durant. Mm-hmm. And he's reminding me, you know, great old-fashioned, I should say, historian Will Durant, who's reminding me about the exact thing you just brought up. He says, he's talking about history as sort of a, a river or a stream. And he says, and I'm quoting here because I can see it, quote, 
Perhaps the cause of our contemporary pessimism is our tendency to view history as a turbulent stream of conflicts between individuals in economic life, between groups in politics, between creeds in religion, between states in war. This is the more dramatic side of history. It captures the eye of the historian and the interest of the reader. But if we turn from that Mississippi of strife, hot with hate and dark with blood, to look upon the banks of the stream, we find quieter but more inspiring scenes. Women rearing children, men building homes, peasants drawing food from the soil, artisans making the conveniences of life, statesmen sometimes organizing peace instead of war, teachers forming savages into citizens, musicians taming our hearts with harmony and rhythm, scientists patiently accumulating knowledge, philosophers groping for truth, saints suggesting the wisdom of love. History has been too often a picture of the bloody stream. The history of civilization is a record of what happened on the banks. End quote. That's one of my favorite lines. And yet he's acknowledging as he says that, that he's going to give you, what is it, a six or seven or eight book series of what's <laughs> happening in the middle of the river. Right. Because that's what people want to read about. That's all on your wall? Man, you have some yeah. really big walls. Well, they're there. To, oh, it's actually, it doesn't take up much room. But, uh, but, but it's one of those things that kind of try, tries to keep me grounded, I guess, a little bit. But, you know, we did name the podcast Hardcore History, so I do have some things to live up to. No, and I'm with you because, again, I end up doing the same thing. I end up being fascinated by the same stuff. Um, I wonder sometimes, though, if it's not, maybe shouldn't it be a responsibility to some degree to also shine the spotlight on something else or maybe remind us that human life is more than just people bashing each other's brain uh, into the ground and that there is actually something possible out there that's about beauty, that's about creating... Amazing. Even in the middle of crappy circumstances, let's put the focus more on the human ingenuity kind. You know, should we? Is that something that we should do so that history doesn't end up being this tale of people who invade each other and so-and-so went to war with so-and-so and this is what happened and, oh, can you believe how gory it was? You know, it's weird because on one end I do have the guilty pleasure and I do tend to indulge in it. And on the other end, when I look back, I'm like, Jesus, really, every single episode I've done, the main character is a murderer every time? Well, but I mean, I'll give you an example, because I see what you're saying, and yet at the same time, I mean, we're dealing with... uh, You can put two kinds of history books side by side and see the difference. One side is a modern-day history book that that will be talking, for example, about, let's just say, Rome. Mm -hmm. And and, and in a modern-day book, there's going to be some archaeology mixed in, some carbon dating. We're going to talk about, you know, but things are going to be in a very sort of uh, dry, analytical way. But at the same time, if you read the whole book, you will know a lot about Rome. But the other book will be from a different perspective where you're talking about personalities and interpersonal relationships and the sort of things that, you know, talk about how this leader had a problem with that leader. And and in other words, it's, you know, the history, as you know, history is everything that ever happened. And so by default, you are picking out things for various purposes. So some histories are devoid of drama because they are scholarly academic works that are not focusing on that. Some histories like the kind we do 
I, I, I always say that our show has three ingredients, and it has to have all three to be a good one. And not all of my shows have had all three, and I think you can tell the difference. But the first one is na- narrative stuff, which mm-hmm. is you know the, the story that, that forms the framework that you can then tell the specific tale within, yeah. the, the, the organizational structure, the time periods, the context. The next thing I call twists, which are like twi- the weird Twilight Zone musings that everybody enjoys you know, lampooning me about that. So this is so fun. So, so that's the second element. And then the third element woven through this, like three strands on a rope is drama. And so when you're talking about stories that, that are feel good stories, there has to be dynamic tension. I mean, yeah. the, the, the rules of drama are old and, and pretty ingrained. You can, you can mess with them and morph them and plasticize them and, and change them a lot. But the, but the basic elements involve some sort of conflict, um, um, something that someone has to overcome. You know, there's a whole bunch of rules. So let's say you want to do an uplifting story that has a good human message at the end. You could do a story, say, about you know, Mohandas K. Gandhi mm-hmm. and talk about his life, which has all the drama you will ever want, right? Sure. There's sex, there's violence, he dies at the end, and yet, you know, it's, it's a story of human progress, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and so for all of that, that would be an example of one that, that had all three of the elements I would need to turn it into a good hardcore history podcast. But at the end, you're still going to feel like, dang, Gandhi died at the end. I mean, there it happened again, Carlin. Yeah. You know, somebody had to get killed, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I but, got you. Know, that's and, an uplifting story with millions of dead people in it. So that's a perfect hardcore history uplifting tale. I love that. <laughs> There's an uplifting story with millions of dead people. And Genghis Khan made the trade route safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm with you, and I think you nailed it, because the idea that, yes, those are the rules of drama, you know, you don't get... Even if you make a movie, you need some kind of conflict because that's our brains, for better or worse, that's the way the human brain is built. We thrive on how do human beings deal with conflict. Now, conflict doesn't always have to be in warfare. It can be other kind of conflict. But if there's no conflict, people get bored. There's no, oh, everything is going great. Everything's yeah, still going great. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's a historical car yeah. accident, and people want a rubberneck. Yeah. You know, that's what, oh my God, did you hear what happened on the Eastern Front? No, right. can I see it? Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's awful. That's a bad one. You right. know, I mean, it's NASCAR with the crashes. Yeah. No, and I get that. In fact, is uh, sometimes I I have the that's my standard default mode. But then I have those moments where I think, man, shouldn't I figure out a way to shine the spotlight on something slightly more pleasant once in a while, where it's not drama? Like, can can there be drama and conflict in a way that's also beautiful in a way, rather than always like, oh Jesus, can you believe how ugly that was? You know, that's sort of what I'm trying. Like, I was. I'm tempted to do this episode. There's this one guy that I really, really like. He's a story of this uh, uh, Zen monk in the 1400s, E.Q. Sojun. And his life, he doesn't kill anybody. Granted, he's in the middle of the Onin War. He's in the middle of the breakdown of the feudal structure in Japan in the 1400s. There is drama all around him. But he seems to float right through it. And he's an hilarious, funny... Uh, kind of life-affirming type of guy. And I'm like, that's going to be a challenge to do an episode on him because he does not seem to be in the middle of the drama all the time. He's just surfing right along it. But I want to do it, you know, because once in a while I feel like we should do something other than uh, here you go with another war kind of thing, you know? 
Well, absolutely. And, you know, you can take and we haven't done enough of this on mine. I mean, I, I have, you know, I have such limitations, I think, as a as a host in terms of my knowledge, because there's certain things that I know about and I have to have that to do a show. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm ignorant on that I have to steer clear of. And so, you know, other people might have more options in terms of, of picking people. But I need to do more stories about single individuals, too, because I think it gives you room to do just what you were saying to mm -hmm. play to you know because it, it's it's interesting to talk about geopolitics and global events because first of all i mean take for example the first world war when yeah. we did that think of how many countries that has interested parties listening in right how many people it killed me on the research because everybody's writing about it too but you had italians and people in central europe and people in eastern europe and people in asia and people in africa i mean they could all relate because they had a part to play in that story. Mm -hmm. Now, necessarily, when you start getting very specific, a lot of those people are like, uh, why do I care about that? Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, now, I don't pick topics that way because I, I, I sort of am motivated by passion and I have to be into it. So unfortunately, people get what I am into or can maintain my interest for a long period of time. And oftentimes those are things at the very the high level. I, I'm always interested in how dynamics interact with each other. And obviously, we're trying to we're trying to examine certain, you know, you talked about nuance earlier. I think I always try to inject nuance into these stories. But now take take stories within stories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about needing the dynamic tension. Well, even that monk that you were just talking about, the context of his life creates that dynamic tension, whether or not he's actively engaging in it if that makes sense because sure. we, i mean if you live in turbulent times yourself that's part of the context of your existence and sometimes if you're trying to show how enlightened and and down to earth and and non-violent and and advanced in a moral sense this person is it makes even more of an impact if you show what amazing times he came from. It's even more surprising you could be that way in such turbulent times. I agree. So, so the context is still setting up that tension that you want in your story. Um, now, I don't inject stuff into the story where it's not there, sure. but, it but it does become a key ingredient in why I choose what I choose. You know, I just threw away a topic that a lot of people really wanted to hear me talk about. But as I was going through it, I'm going... Hmm, this is a tough one because the dynamics and the rhythm of the story is wrong for a podcast. Mm -hmm. It's something that would work better in a book. And sometimes you have these stories where you go, God, this is a movie as opposed to yeah. a podcast, or this is a book, or this is an academic history. I mean, certain things work better in this medium than others. And so I, I unfortunately am probably going to give people a topic that they don't like as much, but it's a topic that will work better in a podcast in terms of, 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 of me being able to use it as a framework to explore all those strands of the rope that we like to explore. And is it going to have all those terrible things in it? Yes, there's going to be very little, up <laughs> I promise, very little uplifting in the next show. No rainbows and unicorns, as usual. <laughs> really? Surprise, surprise. Who would ever saw that coming? I know, it's a shock. I guess, though, one question I have on that is that, okay, we get it, you know, violence and drama, that's one of the key pillars of entertainment. That's how stories, those are the kind of stories that people are drawn to. But the other side, you know, is, is the classic stereotype. You always hear that the twin pillars of entertainment are sex and violence. We definitely got the violence part covered. Uh, in hardcore history, you don't really go much into sexual themes. They don't seem to pop up much. There's a ton of the violence and warfare, not so much the sex part. 
but that is one of the, you know, if we're going to go in stories that people care about and that attract people's attention, it's definitely the other pillar of it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you are heavy on the violence side, not so much on the sex side? Well, first of all, I want to clarify that the violence isn't for violence's sake. Oh, totally. No, I, I get mean, one, one of the reasons we put it in there is because it allows you to have one of those, oh my gosh, I thought things were tough for me, but I had no idea of moments, right? Absolutely. Uh, the ability to say, can you believe people dealt with this, survived mm-hmm. this, lived, the, lived on after suffering through that? I mean, to me, that's a human spirit question. Yeah. So when, if you want to talk about the flip side of the coin, and I'll get to the sex question in a second, but the flip side of the coin of all this violence uh, and, and a perfect example is you brought up the Eastern Front in the Second World War. That whole episode or that whole series of shows was really talking about human beings that get caught up in the gears of history and yeah. ground up because of no fault of their own, a lot of them. They're just living in a place during a time period, and boom, you know, your range of choices is so limited, you find yourself fighting another people that you probably have nothing against personally, and you're both trying to kill each other. I mean, the whole thing is one of those where you go, oh my God, the fact that human beings were able to live through this and triumph and have children and raise families and and bequeath to another generation of people a non-traumatized life. I mean, there's so many upsides. I mean, it's like talking about the Holocaust and then talking about the people that lived through it and survived. And, and I mean, there's, a, there's an upside to the downside is what I'm saying. You want to talk about your yin and yang. That's mm-hmm. it. Right. Now, on, on the sex question, I think we do talk about it. But the problem is, is that that being you're thinking, I think of it more in the interpersonal sense, which is why we don't get much of it mm-hmm. in my shows, because I'm looking at things usually in big geopolitical ways. Mm, so, so, so we do bring up sex, but we bring it up, for example, in that Eastern Front show. We brought it up in the context of the terrible rapes that were a part of the yeah. end, end stages of that. Now, that's not sex in the love and perversity <laughs> sense. That's, exactly. that, that's violence, too. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it in the Mongol show. We talked about it in a more sex way, but in a more David Koresh sex way in Prophets of Doom. <laughs> he brought up, I think, Churchill's mother and the, the interesting, weird, uh, promiscuous but hidden side of Victorian sex practices for like one second in the Churchill show. So it comes up. Uh, we talked about it in the Roman Republic shows where we talked about Caesar's uh, reputation and the sexual attitudes of the times. But mm-hmm. but. But it's not a huge part of it, uh, and, and, and that's, it's not because we shy away from it. It's because normally at the level that I'm talking about it, it doesn't make the cut. I mean, we could have figured out a way to bring up some more rumors in the, in the Persian series that we did. But, I mean, that was already hours and hours and hours. That I mean, when you're looking at the triage on what yeah. makes it in the story and what doesn't, you know, th- that was pretty low on the totem pole in terms of need versus want. I mean, some things have to be in the story and some things are optional. And it just didn't make the cut. So it's not it's not by design. Yeah. Uh, just usually my stories don't go that route. Now, you know, if we start talking about certain other people, it'd be hard to avoid it. But I haven't gotten there yet. No, and I think it makes sense what you're saying, because you're talking about your view of history being a little more macrocosm sometimes. Macro, you, for sure. Yeah. And so in that sense, it only makes the news at the macrocosm level if there's something unusual and disturbing about it. That's a macro why, amount of sex, right. Yeah, exactly. So there is usually, it's not just, oh, can you believe it? These people are having a great time, and they were having sex all over. And it's, that doesn't hit it at the macro. It, it hits it at the, if you focus on an individual biography, then it's a big deal. But if you focus on uh, the big uh, forces of history, 
more often than not that unless you're doing you know an episode on the sexual revolution in the 60s or in the 20s or something like that then you can look at it at a macrocosm level most of the time it only makes the news if it's in a disturbing kind of way well, we brought it up in the slavery show because that's part of the disturbing yeah. little talked about side of slavery, too, especially well in all time periods. Let's yeah. not kid ourselves. But especially in the ancient world. I mean, that was that was part of the whole attraction to the whole thing. Oh, definitely. Right? I mean, you have a live in sex slave and there's nothing they can do about it. And you just go to the market and buy it. Mm-hmm. I got news for you. If we think we're so advanced, if you could sell that today, how many people buy it? Oh, totally. I mean, uh, we haven't changed as much as we think in some ways. No, no. In fact, I sometimes when you say that about like no 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 i'm completely i completely get the mindset of somebody from 2000 years ago in that doesn't mean i approve it but it makes complete sense like i don't think for a second that there would be a moment where people today would spend more than 0.2 seconds saying oh how disturbing i think you know the majority of people will be right on board with it well, I always think about like gladiatorial games. I mean, if yeah. we brought them back today, how many people would be like, well, that's whole I think there'd be some, the medical association would be like, that's terrible. Do you know how many concussions you can get? Yeah. But there'd be some people that like, oh, I'd buy it on pay-per-view. And, and, you, and, and if you did it once, the number of people that would be okay with doing it again, I mean, this gets to your first question at the very beginning about mm-hmm. the, the cultural relativity question. I mean, if you introduced this and it became more of the norm, it's like with legalized marijuana. It's the same question. If, if you legalize this and a whole generation grows up seeing marijuana shops everywhere, does that mean everybody's going to think it's okay and everyone's going to do it? If you have public executions tomorrow, oh, there'll be some protests initially, but if you do five, six, seven of them, are we at the point where you're selling popcorn and, and pay-per-view for that? Oh, I mean, people, people change. <laughs> you hit uh, one of my favorite topics, the whole gladiator thing. I, I have my whole theory. I'm still expecting to receive a call from Sweden awarding me the Nobel Peace Prize for this idea because it's genius. But uh, if I may say so, <laughs> I, I, I'm for the gladiator for world peace idea. The gladiator for world peace idea is, you know, every other war, it's always poor civilians who got caught in between. It's never the people who actually, you know, it's not true, it's not never. It's, of course, some of the people who want the war get killed. But overwhelmingly, it's a bunch of people who want nothing to do with it. It's a bunch of civilians who you happen to be on the wrong side and the invading army does horrible things to you. It happens all the time. My thing is, like, if you have problems with one another, how about the guys who actually want to be in the fight? Let's set aside, let's rent the Coliseum, let's send access to everybody... You guys go at it, the rest, of, no civilians involved, everybody else can sit on the stand or watch on pay-per-view while having a beer and cheering on their favorite team, and no single civilian will ever be killed in a war again, because you have the wars in this kind of ritualized gladiatorial context. Again, I am puzzled by the fact that this hasn't become uh, the grounds for awarding me the Nobel Peace Prize yet, because it's... It's clear, right? It's obvious. How can you not go for gladiators or for world peace? Well, but you know, that's that. Let's go a little earlier in history because that's an extension of the way it used to be done. Yeah. I mean, in the very old world, amongst tribal peoples, going well into the Roman period, uh, later than that, even. I mean, it was common 
to have a couple of champions step out in front of the main army, uh-huh. and both armies would watch as they dueled with each other, and if one side won, sometimes that meant the other side would say, okay, you beat our champion, we're all going home, war's over. <laughs> I mean, you, you might, we, right. we might say that those are very uncivilized people in 99% of the ways, but that might, that might be a more civilized way to handle the affairs, because at least those two champions wanted that gig, and they knew what they were doing, and certainly, I mean, rather than have a bunch of people who just like to be at home, you know, going on dates yep. and enjoying their lives. You have two guys represent, you have your champions. Yep. I mean, that's what it was. And it would be kind of interesting to think, I mean, you could almost do, and this is copywritten as of right now, Danielle, don't you be stealing this from me. <laughs> this is a TV series right now where we imagine that that is how we're going to fight wars. And then we could say, okay, it's a little like the Olympics. Who are we nominating as the representative of the United States? If we get into a war with Russia over Ukraine or something, you know, they're going to bring their challenger. I don't know who it's going to be, but who do we want? Right. You know, our one guy, and it shouldn't be some actor because we know in real life that's not going to work out too well. Yeah. Uh, but I I mean, who would you get and where would you look might be another good question to find the person to be the champion of the United States, you know, in the war with Russia that's decided by two people. Would you would you give them edged weapons or would you say that they could have what would you give them? I mean, what would the limit be? You can't, you <laughs> I know, can't I give know. them the, the nuclear bazooka because <laughs> no. then it's then it's a wash. But yeah. I mean, there'd have, there'd have to be some rules. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. We can bring him back. But I think actually, I mean, of course we're joking. But at the same time, there's the non-joking side of the argument, which to piggyback on your latest series on uh, the whole atomic bomb and the implication that the atomic bomb has on warfare and all of it. If you do acknowledge that civilians are legitimate targets and it, it's okay to attack another country, not just another army, then of course we're going to blow each other to pieces. It's just a matter of time. It's not even a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, when eventually we're going to wipe each other out. So to me, in some way, that's why I joke about the Nobel Peace Prize for Gladiator for War Priest, is because that's kind of the only way to evolve warfare in a way that doesn't lead to the wipeout of humanity, is to have a more ritualized warfare that leave civilians completely out of it, People can still go to war in that way, you know, you can still, but it become, there's a ritual context for it, in which it's done within those parameters, within those limits, uh, because otherwise it will lead to just the end of it all, to some degree. And that's kind of where, after six hours of your episode on uh, the atomic bomb, that's sort of what got me thinking even further about this. It's like, yes, I mean, there is no end as we develop more and more powerful technologies, how can you have a war when, when you press a button, the war is over and the other side has the same and everybody got wiped out? That's not even war anymore. That just guaranteed destruction. So if we st- I'm not uh, you know, assuming that we're all going to get along and everybody hug each other and there will be no, no reasons to kill each other. But I'm thinking that with modern technology, the only way to do it in a way that doesn't lead to a wipeout is to create ritualized warfare which is why I do find considerably more civilized the ancient approach of having your champions go forward. And it doesn't have to be even one guy. It can be anybody you want to. If you have like 7,000 people on one side and 8,500 on the other, well, we can have a lot of pay-per-views. We'll have a few months of pay-per-views on this, you know. But it is uh, uh, there's a clear boundary in which that's accepted that does not involve peaceful civilians. 
Thanks for reminding me that my last history show was six hours long. What the heck was I thinking? Um, no, but but the only problem, of course, the sticking point in your idea, my friend, is that how do you get the rest of the people to live with the results, right? If, yeah. if, if the champion of Russia beats the champion of the United States, the rest of the country has to go, oh, darn, we lost, and just walk away. And that's the, that's the part that's hard. But, you know, we all understand. I mean, there's whole books written on the idea of ritualized combat. And some mm-hmm. of the most interesting periods for me in military history are when societies that practice ritualized combat still run into societies that have jettisoned that in terms of whatever works best. Yeah. And, and you see that, I mean, uh, a, a perfect example, maybe the classic example, is the Mongol invasions of Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Mongols, who are, who are about as cut and dried of... of um, what would you say that they're just the whatever works society when it comes to war yeah. running up against a Japanese system where the ritualization of warfare permeated the entire upper stratas of the culture. And so the two running into each other where one side has formalized rules and expects everyone to follow them and the other side says to heck with that. We'll shoot you from behind when you're not looking. It's fascinating to me. That's why I don't, I don't tend to like civil wars because both sides are too similar to mm-hmm. each other. But I love those periods when really different kinds of forces, either technologically different or systematically different Persians against Greeks or in terms of how they see the entire question of combat, ritualization versus, you know, a much more utilitarian approach, those are the times where I get the most turned on. And and I love the idea of saying that, you know what, man's got to go back to his roots when it comes to the way we fight. In order to continue to fight and not be wiped out, we have to ritualize it again. And, you know, everybody wins. Pay-per-view numbers would be huge. We sell a lot of beer as a result, and no civilians die. I think you'd have more war when you ran out of pay-per-view shows. You'd say, oh, my gosh, you know, we have to tax the people or we have to come up with another pay-per-view show. Uh, Attack China. It'll be great for ratings. (laughs) I'm all for it. (laughs) I think it's a great... Okay. Cool, man. No, that's uh, okay. Well, we'll elaborate this because I'm not giving up on my Nobel Peace Prize. We'll just need to clean up the idea a little bit. That's all. There you go. Just tweak it. Exactly. One thing that, going on a completely different route, something that a classic historical debate that I keep running into over and over. There's on one side all those books that tend to portray prehistoric hunting and gathering culture says completely peaceful and hugging each other and they are all living in harmony with nature and they are sweet and great. On the other side you have all those authors and historians who try to portray them as ultra bloody and you know vicious and only state societies what save us from the barbaric nature of humanity because ancient hunters and gatherers were just vicious evil people. It, it's basically kind of supporting the, either the vicious savage or the noble savage stereotype. And when looking at the historical record, I personally find it confusing. Like, I don't really know for sure. I have some inclination to feel one way more than another. But I'm not entirely clear that the historical record speak with one voice when it comes to violence in hunting and gathering times. Uh, What's your take on it? Do you see hunting and gathering society as being, again, usually, because of course there are exceptions to everything, but usually more violent than modern society? You tend to see them as less violent than modern society? Do you, where do you stand on this debate? I think you phrased it perfectly when you said that you find the, the 
data confusing. Mm-hmm. But but I think I have a possible explanation for this. Uh, and, and again, you know, totally unqualified to have an explanation. But this might work if you think if you think about just differences. For example, look at we'll talk about the American Native Aboriginal peoples of the Southwest. For example, mm-hmm. within that realm. You have some American tribes like the Zuni, the Pueblo, the Hopi that are are known for being, you know, we stick to our own stuff. We don't we don't tend to bother our neighbors too much. We're relatively peaceful. We stay in our own area and that kind of thing. And then you have tribes that that are not just hunters and gatherers, but hunters, gatherers and raiders. Mm -hmm. And they supplement, for example, a lack of food or a lack of some resource by taking it. Yep. Uh, the Apache, the Navajo, uh, the Comanche. I mean, these, these are people that weren't just raiders but had, had integrated into their civilization a proud warrior heritage that was a – you want to talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have warriors and they have a status in a warrior society – they're going to want to prove that status somehow, and that's built into the culture too. I think you see this in Africa as another example of tribal peoples where you have some tribes. I believe the Kalahari Bushmen are, are mm-hmm. pretty darn peaceful people, and yet near them you have tribes that will raid you and steal your women. and do. All. In other words, I, I would make the case that perhaps there have always been groups of people that were more inclined to violence and and con- confrontation mm-hmm. and the and and the if you will seeing opportunity in another tribe's weakness and others that didn't do that and and so maybe the data is confusing because you really have both types does that make sense totally so in that sense assuming that there's one truth for all hunters and gatherers that they are all sweet and mellow and don't fight or they are all these vicious war prone people it's just a stereotype. It's just kind of intellectual laziness by trying to paint with one big brush throat something that's considerably more complex because there are there's individual variation. There's this one hunting and gathering tribe that's very different from that other hunting and gathering tribe, which may be the reason then why the historical record is so messy because you're you're trying to draw a conclusion about whole hunt, all hunters and gatherers, and yet they are very different from one another then yes, you are trying to compare apple and oranges in a way. Just because they are all hunters and gatherers doesn't mean that they all behave the same way. It's that same nuanced question that we started with. You yep. know, it, it's more complicated than just saying an either-or situation. It's both. It always is, right? That's my standard answer to everything. It's, anytime I hear an argument that's very black and white... I can almost automatically assume that it's wrong. There are rare exceptions when it's not, when sometimes reality is black and white. But that happens so rarely that the overwhelming majority of the time you will be a little more complex. So there we are again with the nuance. So yes, I'm with you on that. Well, speaking of speculation about the past, there's... um, a couple of authors, uh, also people who have been on the Jerogan podcast like us, um, Graham Hancock and Randall Carson, they believe that mainstream historians are ignoring evidence for a meteor strike around 12,000 years ago that may have kind of contributed to the end of the last, uh, last ice age, uh, the end of the mammoths and all the kind of megafauna that people relied on back then. It may have even wiped out traces of more ancient civilizations. I love to hear your opinion on this. Actually, before I even Okay, I asked the question. I'm going to do a quick parenthesis on this because something that just came up. 
Regarding what you were saying earlier about the Apache, for listeners who haven't checked it out, Dan did a beautiful episode on Apache history very early on in Hardcore History, I believe. It may have even been your very first episode that was longer than an hour, which, yes, that was a long time ago, considering <laughs> now episodes, if they are less than five hours, you're like, I barely got warmed up here. What is this? Back thing? in my golden era. Yeah, but uh, yeah, if people haven't checked it out, check out Dan's episode on the Apache. It was brilliant. Loved it. And uh, I actually, if you ever decide to go down in that direction again, treating those topics, I think you did a fabulous job with it. So I'd love to hear more about it. But okay. oh, I, lo- I love the Apache. I'm, I've always been a, a just extremely interested in it. and and they're they're they've got so many you want to talk about strands of history that just tug at your soul in so many directions oh, yeah. uh, the apache are a microchasm for so many other native tribes around the world totally no and i think that's why i don't know if you decide to pick a different angle on it i mean right now it's again the way you do podcasts now it would be a 12 hour series on the apache what you nine did parts in, exactly yeah. what you did in <laughs> one hour last time 28 so, hours on the apache yeah. so if you ever decide to go down that route you have my vote i think it's a great idea but even if you don't people check out this older episode that was really really cool in any case parentheses closed let's go back to the gramenko crandall carson thing what do you think about that idea well, listen, I I would love it to be true is, mm-hmm. is the answer because I'm fascinated by the idea. And I actually have, you know, when I was a history major, we used to sit around between classes and, and, and ask a similar question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but the similar question was, what, were there human civilizations before the dinosaurs? Yeah. Right? Because the, it's hard to get past the lack of an archaeological record of any kind. I mean, when you find dinosaur bones everywhere, it's hard to say that you were going to have a civilization of human beings that was advanced, what, 12,000 years ago, you said, and not find physical remains somehow. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, and, you know, and not just one or two, but I mean, there are going to be graveyards. There are yeah. going to be skulls. There are going to be, I mean, if you wanted to say pre-dinosaurs, well, I'm sure there's something wrong with that theory. I mean, I'm sure some paleontologist is thinking, God, this guy is so much dumber than I just thought he wasn't <laughs> saying that. But, but at the same time, it gets away from the argument about finding physical signs because that's a long enough time period to say that, that virtually nothing would have survived. Mm-hmm. Um, 12,000 years ago, though, from, a, from a, a paleontologist's point of view, is nothing. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and, and you can say, and, and maybe with some validity, that the oceans cover that kind of stuff, and it does, and I would love, you know, I have these fantasies, I have dreams sometimes of the, of, of the ocean levels falling way below where they are today in like a week, and we all get to walk around. And yep. see, because, you know, over the years, obviously, everything that is obviously on the surface of the earth has been picked up by somebody, mm-hmm. and, and, and they walk away with whatever they can, but there's a ton of stuff just sitting on the ocean floor of the the guy that I did my senior thesis for in college is an underwater archaeologist mm-hmm. off of Caesarea. And I always thought it was so incredible. And he would say, this stuff is just sitting there because nobody walks by and picks it up over yeah. the eras. So, I mean, I have these fantasies myself that you could just drain the area of the Black Sea and start walking around, you know, ancient cities that have never disappeared. Um, and they may be there. But in terms of stuff that might be on land, it's hard to imagine something 12,000 years ago and you're not finding skulls. No, and I'm with you on that part. In fact, it's not like I'm 
sold. I find there are a few things that I find intriguing because I find them hard to explain. Like, for example, the whole uh, go back, go, bl- I can never pronounce that thing. Do you know that site in Turkey, go back, li- te- Oh, no, nobody like can pronounce. You have to be, even Turks yeah. can't pronounce. <laughs> Good. Well, I can pronounce anything. So that's it's just one couple more words in my long list of things I can pronounce. There's but too many consonants in a row. I know. That's like when you start having those. But. You know, that to me is interesting because that's a case of something where the standard explanation obviously doesn't add up, which doesn't mean that alternative explanations are the solution because maybe they are not the explanation either. But the idea that you have uh, hunters and gatherers, which according to the way we do history, we believe hunting and gathering people to be in these tiny, small bands, which at most they can get together for a season in groups of maybe 100 people, and that's even stretching it. The idea that people living in those kind of society can mobilize the labor to build this massive architecture that require unbelievable knowledge, but even more than knowledge, just numbers. You just need the numbers of people, which, as far as we understand, that's not what hunters and gatherers can do. So something there seems to be off in that story to me. Either our understanding of hunters and gatherers is incomplete, and they could do stuff like that, but that's clearly not the model we're going by, or they couldn't do stuff like that, which means that there was something, a more complicated picture of human history that doesn't just go from simple to more complex, but there was something more complex back then of which we lost track. Again, I'm not sold on what the answer is, because I don't know it, obviously. I am intrigued, though, with the mystery, because I do find that sometimes more orthodox historians tend to dismiss this a bit too quick. Well, I, I have a theory on this, though, because this is a wonderful, wonderful question you just mm-hmm. brought up. Um, here's, here's my theory. Uh, my theory is that, that the fact that the, for example, structures ex- exist, I mean, or, 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 I'm trying to apply this across the board to other places. Let, yeah. Let's look at the, the megaliths in, in Great Britain, or, I mean, you know, you used to hear all this stuff about the pyramids and, and the complexes around ancient Egypt, and they would say something to the effect of, if I'm paraphrasing here, you can deduce that there must be something else because the people of the time period could not have done this. Mm-hmm. Now, I would suggest the opposite, that the fact that those things exist should tell us that they could. Right. And, and, and that what we're, the mistake we're having here is not trying to figure out a way that they could. So you had, so you had brought up the hunter-gatherer problem and said that you, know, you couldn't get enough people mm-hmm. to do this kind of thing. I would suggest that the fact that it's there suggests that that theory is wrong. Right. That's, that, that either they could do that mm-hmm. or that they had another way to do this than we assumed. And, and we forget about that a lot, too, because if you haven't done something a different way in a long time, I yeah. mean, if, if we were going to rebuild the pyramids today, we would do it in an entirely different way. Sure. And, you, and you might be blind to other ways to do it. And I think that I think I would err on the opposite side of that equation that says the ancient peoples could not have been this precise. Therefore, someone else must have helped and say, no, the fact that those things are there and that they exist shows that they could do more than we uh-huh. thought they could do. And I always do think that it devalues the innate cleverness of our ancestors, because as one of my teachers pointed out, and I've never forgotten that, he said, listen, he said, we have an ability they didn't to build on previous knowledge in a way they couldn't, right? Uh Somebody could write a book 100 years ago, and you could read it today and and build upon that knowledge. But he said the people of the past are every bit as clever 
on an individual basis as we are, and they were able to create systems to work around their problems the same way we are. Now, they might not have been systems that we would use. Certainly, we have better things. But they also might not have been systems that are easily visible and apparent to us today. So when you say people in that time period could never have built something like that, I think we're assuming a lot. Because we couldn't, if you, if you made us into hunter-gatherers yeah. tomorrow, but they're working with a different set of parameters. They have different things that they were raised with. And I think they've consistently proven, in other cases, to do things that you never thought they could. So in my mind, the, 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 the way to approach that is to say, obviously, these people could do something we didn't think they could do because the results are sitting in front of our eyes. No, and I completely get that. And in fact, that's a very likely possibility. I, and that's why I find it weird in these debates, because usually the people who tend to shut down those theories then don't want to deal with the cases that don't fit with the official story, like this one. It doesn't have to mean that there was a more ancient civilization, but it does mean that our current model of hunters and gatherers is incomplete, at least. So at the very least, you need to look at the evidence to figure out how instead hunters and gatherers could have done it. And instead, it seems fairly often when people can't explain something, they either run with it with theories that may not be fully backed up by evidence, or they just completely ignore it because it doesn't fit their paradigm. And then just like, oh, it's too complicated, forget it. It's like, uh, I don't know, something happened, it worked. Uh, next, let's talk about something Well, else. I mean, look at it from the obvious point of view. If you have three possibilities, mm -hmm. right? Possibility number one is the aliens came down and built it. Possib <laughs> possibility number two is... There was an Atlantean-style advanced culture uh -huh. that, that built it. Third possibility is the native peoples who were hunter-gatherers somehow built it. Yeah. In my mind, that's the most likely simply from a rationality standpoint. Now, sure. does, that, does that by default mean either of the other two are not true? No, but I would consider the first thing to be the least uh, objectionable, least outrageous, and least one that appears to be reaching. Right. I mean, the more sure. obvious choice is we're just wrong about their capabilities. Now, could the aliens have come down? Absolutely. But I'm not going <laughs> right. to go there first. Yeah, no, I, I completely. I'm with you. It's like, I want some alien skulls to turn up to help me out with that. One. Yeah. Start with the more obvious scenario and then work your way back if you need to. If you... I find Atlantis, if it turns out to be true, then I'm going to say, well, they probably went and built that. But until right. you find that, the default answer would seem to be that ancient people were more clever and able to do more than we give them credit for no and in fact it's funny like when you think about for example when people came uh, into what's today the united states and they found all the mounds that were left behind by mississippian cultures that was their thing it's like they could not believe the local indigenous people their ancestors had done it and so it was like huh how do we explain the fact that there are these highly complex structures must have been the aliens or must have been, you know, the the lost tribes of Israel found them. They must the have gods come here were and coming yeah, down exactly. on Earth and doing like it. Every possible explanation other than the obvious, which is giving credit to the local people in this case and their ingenuity in the past. So no, I, I completely get it. Makes sense. Well, since we're jumping around, one more thing that I want to throw your way. Um I was working on uh, uh, I did a series on Theodore Roosevelt a few months ago. And reading a lot about Roosevelt's life and the cultural context in which he grew up, I, I ran again and again in the classic notion about the arc of civilizations. This is something that you have touched on, for example, in the old school toughness episode of Hardcore History. The idea being the more, the more success a civilization has, the softer it gets. 
uh, and thereby planting the seeds of its own downfall. You know, the idea being, I guess, if you are successful, you do it by hard work, but then you want to enjoy your life and you don't want to be sending your kids to do the same brutally hard work that you had to do. You want them to have an easier life. The problem is that easier then becomes softer, softer become weak and weak become, you know, that same civilization that was built on this tough hard work begin to crack. Mm, I'm wondering, do you think that's just inevitable? Is it something that there is indeed an arc of civilization and that's the way things are? Is there an antidote to that? Is there any way you want to take this topic? And I know it's something that you dig because of the way you have already mused about it in a few other episodes. I would, I would love to hear your take on this. Well, it's one of the oldest theories on history that there is, isn't it? I mean, right. they, forever that was the way it was viewed by ancient Greeks, Romans. I mean, all the way up until relatively recently, it was almost taken as a truism. I had quoted Will Durant earlier. Well, some of his books go back to like, the 19, late 30s, early 40s, and you find it there too. Um, so it, it, it must have some connection where you, you, I mean, I'll look at it like a boxer, right? That these boxers would come to America, and because they had nothing and no skills and maybe no education and were coming from the ground up, there are whole periods where you can look at boxers as a microcosm of the immigration trends of the country. Totally. So, so you had Jewish boxers once upon a time. People are often shocked to hear that. But when these kids were the first generation kids of immigrants who came over on the boats, that's sometimes how they make their mark in the world. But then when they make some money and find a way out of that lifestyle, they don't want their kids to do that, right? They want their kids to have easier lives, more educated lives, go into professions that are more upstanding and less, less, less uh, um, on the social level that boxing was. There weren't a whole lot of rich aristocratic American boxers. There were some, but in general, that's, that was something that the lower classes had a stranglehold over because that was something that they could do. And then the first thing they wanted to do is make sure their kids didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Give them a better life. And so if you take that as a microchasm of human beings acting, you know, all across the country or all across the world and then turn it into a country thing, right? If a country is simply the, the record of all the different human beings operating within it, well, then that's a logical thing to deduce. And yet at the same time, I would suggest that you see examples that don't fit the mold. And I think that you, you know, I mean, let's go back to, to Rome, mm -hmm. Because that's always a wonderful example to me, and, and and they would they would look at their barbarian opponents and adversaries, and they would admire the fact that they still had the toughness, and they they would talk about you know when people like Cato were bemoaning the Roman civilization degenerating into wastrels who enjoyed sex and drinking and games, and and were none of these toughies that they used to have in the old Republic. That was playing into that entire life cycles of empire ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And yet Rome managed to compensate for whatever weaknesses they perceived themselves to have in ways that, you know, made up for it. I mean, a military system that didn't require individual bravery and toughness, for example, to the same degree. A country that could devote resources to putting together large armies in the field that maybe their tougher, more individualistic barbarian opponents couldn't do. Barbarian is a slur term. We all understand that. Uh -huh. But we know what we mean when, I sit, when we say it. Hollywood-style barbarians. The point is, is that, that to me, if that's true, that... that people become weaker over time and then that weakness is exploited by more more old school tougher cultures then 
how are we existing today? How are the how are the cultures at the top of the of, of the food chain today able to maintain it if they're getting weaker? Well, certainly part of it is we don't accept the weakest in society into our militaries. The tip of the spear is as tough as it ever was and maybe better trained and certainly better equipped and technology compensates for a lot. And so I would say that that even if that idea is true, we've managed to overcome the weaknesses by exploiting our strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and that's not to say that, that that's even a truism, but certainly people over time have used that as a template to overlay the rise and fall and the, the greatness and the nadir of empires throughout history in terms of the personal weakening of, of the individual citizens due to the softness of the times. What was the old line? It was Voltaire, where we, we quote him forever, saying that, you know, it's forever wooden shoes climbing upstairs and silk slippers going downstairs. <laughs> right. And the silk slippers represents, of course, our, probably our own time here. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's it's tablets and writing going upstairs and iPads coming downstairs, uh-huh. you know. Um, but we managed to use those iPads in a way that can compensate for our lack of toughness very well. I mean, we're attacking those tough people in some countries with drones today, and there's not a darn <laughs> thing they can do about it. Right. <laughs> so there's a technological alternative. Like, why you hold that this idea of the, the cycle of civilizations may be true, technology changed the game a little bit. In well, it always the, had. Those right. Roman legions were tough to overcome no matter how tough the barbarian you know, slur word were. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Make perfect sense. Um, I'm gonna, you're going to hate me for this, but oh well. There's, um, you always say this, uh, the people who should have certain jobs, particularly positions of power, the people who I want hate it. I, I hate you already. I know. I know because you I'm know where I'm going. Hawaii. Don't add to my tweets. <laughs> I want the Dan Carlin president of United States in 2020. So the more you deny it, the more I'm going to push for it. I think that's the way to go. But I, okay, I give it. If you manage to get to become king of Hawaii, then we'll give you a pass on the presidential gig. Otherwise, I want Dan Carlin for president. Listen, that, yeah, let me just tell you something, because I hear that from the listeners occasionally, too. That is the greatest compliment in the world. I mean, that is the greatest compliment anybody can say is that, you know, you would want somebody uh, in, in office making decisions that affected your life. Uh, so I'm not going to downplay the fact that it's a, it's a remarkable thing to say to somebody, and I appreciate that. On, on the other side, though, I mean, and I've said this many times, that I would be disqualified at the get-go from the job. I can hardly serve on a jury because, I, <laughs> because I'm not willing to judge my fellow man. I, I don't... I, I, you know, presidents in this day and age maybe always have had to be in positions to make life or death decisions with people. I desperately don't want to ever make life and death decisions for anybody. So in so many ways, I mean, I think people think that, okay, Dan would provide nuance. Dan would really think about these things. Dan has a little bit of historical context he'd be working with. And yes, those are my upsides, but those do not compensate for the myriad downsides I bring to the table. In ter- you know, there was this wonderful uh, Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk's personality is split into his positive side and his negative side, mm-hmm. into two separate individuals. One guy is 
all his negative qualities and the other guy is all the positive qualities. And the positive Kirk is able to, you know, think about other people and, and, and he's able to listen to their problems and, and relate and understand. And the bad Kirk is going around beating people up and raping women and all these other things. But then the ship gets into trouble and it's time to make command decisions where life or death has to happen. And all of a sudden the good Kirk can't do it because that's part of the, that's part of the negative Kirk's personality. In other words, that bad side comes with the things you need in that situation. And I would be the good Kirk. And I would make, I would be like in that situation, you're going, God, why did we elect this wimp? Push the button, Carlin. Nuke Russia. It has to happen. And I'd be, I'd be like, what do I do? I can't do it. I can't, you know. So I would be a terrible president. I appreciate the compliment. But really, you, you need somebody much more willing to kill people than I am. I could talk about it. I could make a good episode about it. But I'd be a bad guy to have to enact those kind of policies. That's- too weak. Too too much gray area, bad president. I see. And also, I guess, uh, I like you too much on a personal level to wish that upon you, because usually those kind of jobs, there's a reason why mainly psychopaths was those kind of jobs. They're not having lunch anymore when that happens. No, exactly. No more lunches. Yeah, people who actually want to enjoy life usually don't get everything. And I mean, lobbyists at that point. Yeah. So, no, King of Hawaii. King of Hawaii sound more smaller scale kind of issues more manageable there's still time for lunch we can do that that's right and i can worry about lono returning and i don't have to is it lono or is it lono i mean if you're the king of hawaii you should know those things Nah, if you're the king of hawaii you set down your own rules you don't need to know anything it's all good you might have to have some human sacrifice to come back i hope that's not a problem no no whatever whatever the king desires his will shall be granted Right, just going to Hawaii would be nice. So, yeah, so I, yeah my, I have small concerns, small needs. That usually is the first step to become king of Hawaii. You probably should visit Hawaii at some point. That you know, it's not as hard prerequisite, but yes, it helps. You know, That's, the first uh, the first thing they're going to say is we don't do human sacrifice here, Carl. And you'd learn that first. So yeah, I can already hear the emails rolling in. <laughs> oh man! Well, thank you so much. This is awesome as usual chatting with you. So, oh, I enjoy talking with you anytime, buddy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Chatting with the epic Dan Carden is always a treat, and this was no exception. I hope you'll forgive me for having an interview rather than a regular episode, but I feel like Dan makes this more than worth it. As I mentioned in the introduction, I'm planning a bonus episode that will be available for free to anyone who donated over the last three months, and it will be up for sale at historyonfirepodcast.com for everyone else. 
I'll post news about this on um, my public Facebook page at Daniele Bolelli my public Facebook I'll make sure to let you guys know when this will be released and everything else I also want to extend a big thank you to blueapron.com for choosing to sponsor one episode a month for the rest of the year I've enjoyed tremendously every single time I've received one of their deliveries and cooked it up with my family as a matter of fact I'll be placing my next order as soon as I stop recording this episode and I'm looking forward to that For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients, and it can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They have a very wide variety in their menus and possibilities to customize it to your dietetic preference. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Having said this... What else do I want to tell you? I want to tell you, well, I want to say a big thank you to my never-failing sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara, who are with me all the time, rain or shine. You can check out Onnit products going to onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive a 10% discount on all their range of supplements, special foods, clothing, exercise equipment, you name it. Anything that Aubrey Marcos, the boss at Omni, thinks that can make his life better, he then develops it, puts it up for sale, and you can have it available as well to see if it can make your life better. Also, if you are in the market for backpacks, computer bags, or anything else made of hemp, pretty much, you check out my favorite at dsgear.com and use the code DANIELE at checkout for a discount. Daniele is D-A-N-I-E-L-E. And as usual, also a big thank you to anyone who has donated to the podcast and anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link. Again, I'll remind you one more, if you shop on Amazon, please bookmark the History on Fire Amazon link so that every time you use Amazon, you can go through that link. You will help the podcast more than I can tell you. Of course, reviews on iTunes are also very welcome, so if you feel like spending 30 seconds dropping a review on on iTunes, I deeply appreciate it. If you miss my voice during this month in between episodes, you want to check out the Taoist Lecture Series. This is a series of 16 lectures spanning a total of about, if I remember correctly, it's about 7 hours. Um, You have it, it's at danielebolelli.com. I'll provide the link in the episode notes about it, and also available there is the audiobook of my most recent book called Not Afraid. If any of those things could be of interest to you, you'll find the links in the episode notes. Having said all this, I'll now take my leave and wish you guys a wonderful day. (laughs) 